0: Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where we continue connecting the six degrees of Robert Evans this week as we move the kid into the 1980s. Included in this episode, a cocaine bust, a lot of drugs, and an obsession for Robert Evans. What is that obsession? Making a little film called The Cotton Club, In his memoir, The Kid Stays in the Picture, Robert Evans writes, Intrigue, anger, blackmail, deceit, pussy galore, macho grandstanding, backstabbing, and threats to life and career plagued the five-year making and near unmaking of the Cotton Club. The treacheries involved were so bizarre that The Godfather and Scarface combined, pale in comparison. I can only tell some of the story not wanting my life insurance canceled. It had all the makings of a mega hit, but The Cotton Club seemed doomed from the start. From script issues, fights between Robert Evans and Francis Ford Coppola, casting problems and financial troubles, the film had every problem imaginable, and that was before Roy Radin's murder was attached to the project. Yes, there's a murder in this episode, too, and a lengthy period of time where Robert Evans, who is not a murderer, gets slung up in almost a decade of nasty, nasty business. Before we dip into the 1980s today, I do have some big thanks to give to a few folks out there. First up, big love to JLZ, who sent along quite the gifts to me this week in the form of some research books and source letters. Oh, stay tuned for those investigators. You will have Miss J to thank soon enough as well. Also, a huge round of love to our latest supporters over at patreon.com slash done and done. Big thanks, The OP and Tower Velo Bicycle Shop. Y'all rock. Your support is very much appreciated. As well as the support of all of our Patreon folks. If you are looking to get more out of this Done and Done podcast experience, patreon.com slash Done and Done is the place to go to find out more. We roll ad free and early episodes weekly, not done yet bonus episodes too. We talked about Diane Keaton last week and are not done yet. And I have a whole lot of surprises coming for every single level this week on Patreon. Big thanks for joining today. We have made it to the 1980s. Things are about to get pretty wild. As always, in this Robert Evans series, there is a strong caution for language and adult themes. Be prepared to clutch your pearls. All right, Robert Evans moving the kid into the 1980s and throughout the Cotton Club Murders too. Let's investigate. investigators, let's set our stage a bit here. I want to catch you up with a few different bits. From the piece Blonde Widow at Bardak Reports, these few paragraphs do sum up a bit about what Robert Evans is up to as we are moving into the fabulous 80s. In 1983, Evans was still ensconced in decorator offices at Paramount Pictures where he had ruled the roost from 1965 to 1975, supervising the production of hits such as Love Story, The Godfather, Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, and The Odd Couple. Although he was no longer king, owing to a well-publicized bust and conviction for cocaine possession in 1980, Evans was still a prince. In 1979, he had bought the rights to a book called The Cotton Club, a chronicle about the famous Harlem Nightclub, which he described to friends as a surefire blockbuster about, quote, gangsters, pussy, and music, unquote. Evans was so sure of his project that he didn't want Paramount to produce it. He says, that was my first big mistake. I wanted to own the film. The second big mistake was not taking Adnan Khashoggi's money, he says, referring to the then-billionaire arms dealer who wanted to finance the movie. Robert Evans continues, He was too hard a negotiator. I walked out of the meeting and said, I don't want to take your money. My lawyer, Kenny Ziffrin, thought I was crazy and fired me. If ever I was wrong, I was wrong. Evans then turned to Ed and Fred Dumani brothers of Lebanese descent to own hotels and casinos in Las Vegas. All was fine until the Domani's read a draft of Mario Puzo's original script and hating it, unceremoniously pulled the plug on the project. Evans then began a furious hunt for funds to keep his pet project going, even selling his Paramount stock to pay his bills. His quest became an obsession. The quest to make the Cotton Club does become an obsession for Robert Evans, but let's back up the bus just a minute, (laughs) talk about a bit in that intro, and fold cocaine into this picture. I want you to know Robert Evans did get popped for cocaine in 1980, and to be fair, a lot of folks were doing cocaine in 1980, but it is imperative to note that cocaine is the absolute undercurrent sideline of this story. After his cocaine bust, Robert Evans will do a public service announcement with Bob Hope at this time to forewarn kids off all the drugs. Robert Evans, his obsession, The Cotton Club. It is a film with all kinds of noise attached to it. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Richard Gere, Gregory Hines, Diane Lane, Bob Hoskins, among many, many others. It's a big-time film, lots of buzz about it, long time coming. The film will get made, perhaps, with some challenges and be successful, but always has something else attached to it. What else is attached to The Cotton Club? The mystery of the death of Roy Radin, which doesn't remain much of a mystery. Hollywood can be a seedy place. Who is Roy Radin? Roy Radin is a name that most people might not be familiar with, but in the 1970s and 1980s, he was a big-time entertainment promoter. Radin primarily gained his wealth and influence from promoting vaudeville-type shows and oldies musical tours. He knew this was the life he wanted from a young age, Raiden drops out of high school to pursue his dreams. By the time he hit his mid-1920s, he was a millionaire. Could have been enough. Should have been enough. Unfortunately, though, for Roy Raiden, the reason he would gain the most notoriety in his life was for his murder. In 1983, the then 33-year-old Roy Raiden flew to Los Angeles and met with Robert Evans. Robert Evans wanted to produce the film The Cotton Club, and Roy Radin was interested in financing it. Also at that meeting was Robert Evans's co-producer of the film, a lady named Elaine Jacobs, who Robert Evans was romantically involved with at the time. Elaine Jacobs was also known as Karen Greenberger, or Laney Jacobs, and was involved in many, many criminal activities. So a producer and a potential financer meeting to discuss a project was certainly nothing unusual. But when Roy Radin went missing shortly after his meeting with Bob Evans, people began to wonder. No money had exchanged hands between Robert Evans and Roy Radin, they merely had a handshake agreement at the end of their meeting. Roy Radin was last seen around 7 p.m. on May the 12th, 1983, getting into a limousine with Laney Jacobs. No one saw or heard from him again until his remains were found on June the 10th. A decomposed body with a gunshot wound to the head, was discovered in a creek about 60 miles from Los Angeles. The body was identified as Roy Radin through dental records. The lady with all the aliases, Elaine, Laney, Karen Greenberger, Laney was questioned right away since she was the last person to be seen with Roy Radin. Laney's account of what happened that night was, hmm, inconsistent. She gave differing accounts of why she and Roy Radin were in the limousine, where they were going, and what their relationship was. She said they were meeting friends for dinner at one point. She then claimed that she and Radin had begun arguing in the car and that he had thrown her out. Later, Laney said that Radin made the limousine driver help him get out she never denied being in the limousine with Raiden, but Laney had multiple versions of what had happened. Despite this, Laney Jacobs was still not considered a prime suspect early on in Raiden's disappearance or murder. That would later change. Initially, there were several theories about what had happened to Raiden, including one about him being involved in a cult, The New York Times reported that a friend of Raiden's told them that he was involved with Cuban cocaine traffickers. The friend was quoted as saying, he had been warned. He had been told to keep his mouth shut. He laughed it off. He said, those punks don't scare me. Let's go ahead and circle back and talk about Elaine Jacobs Laney. Who was she? Elaine Jacobs had been introduced to Robert Evans as a Wealthy socialite interested in getting involved in the film industry. You can imagine this would be catnip to Robert Evans. He was told that Laney was attractive and she knew many, many rich people who would like to finance his movie projects because they found the business glamorous. In The Kid Stays in the Picture, Evans describes how he explained the introductions and relationship with both Roy Radin and Elaine Jacobs, to his attorney, Robert Shapiro. During the next few days, I filled Shapiro in on every detail I remembered regarding Roy Radin, how I was looking to put together a motion picture company to raise enough money privately to finance my own films and own the negative, the most valuable asset in Hollywood, how I was receptive to meeting rich people outside the industry, people who were captivated by the mystique of film. How my house became a revolving door from the wealthy to the entrepreneurial and the hustler. You name it, they all came in and out. How a chauffeur from Ascot Limousine, a company I half-owned, told me about the new customer he was driving night and day, a wealthy divorcee from Texas looking to get into the film business. Who recommended her? Oh, the Morrison family, the largest stockholders in General Motors. Split their time between Bel Air, Gross Point, and Palm Beach, top of the line. This lady I'm driving is good friends with them. What's her name? Jacobs, Laney Jacobs. How old? About thirty five, real looker, your type, mystery. Would you like to meet her? Wealthy, divorcee, mid thirties, real attractive, Robert Evans continues. <laughs> Writing Fuck films. Don't have one of her kind on my dance card. Can't show up with a 21-year-old starlet at a serious dinner. Two days later, Robert Evans met Elaine Jacobs and told her he was looking for a minimum of $50 million to start his company, and Elaney Jacobs suggested Robert Evans should meet Roy Radin. Now, that is the way Robert Evans describes the situation, There is a little bit more to the story, which we will reveal when we come back from a very quick break. There is a little bit more explanation and unpacking of that story. I'm not saying that Robert Evans is an unreliable narrator, but there is a little bit more detail that we can get into. Again, remember, cocaine is the undercurrent of this tale. It is a drug that causes a number of bad decisions. So remember, Robert Evans is obsessed with making the Cotton Club, back to the blonde widow piece. His quest became an obsession, according to a former production assistant, and he mentioned it to everyone, including his chauffeur, Gary Keyes. A week later, in March 1983, Keyes drove Laney Jacobs, accompanied by Anna Montenegro, Through the electronic gates to Evans' house. Evans denies being desperate to raise money, insisting that he met Laney, quote unquote, almost as a favor to Gary Keys. Evans says, I'm very incident prone. I've had a great deal of things happen to me. Unfortunately, this was a disaster for me. At that time, however, Evans found Laney to be, quote, a very sweet, fun girl woman, whatever you want to call her. She couldn't have been nicer and she was very positive, Evans was impressed with her cool competence and the graceful way she conducted business. He says, I must tell you what attracted me to her. Her son was named Dax and I made the movie of The Adventurers. I found that fascinating. I'll go one step further. I was so charmed by her that after she had her eyes done, I wanted to introduce her to my ex-wife to see if Allie McGraw wanted to have her eyes done. Go to the same doctor because he did such a good job. (laughs) Oh, Hollywood. According to court testimony, Evans laid out his plan for a $35 million production company to finance his three pet film projects, The Cotton Club, The Two Jakes, and the second sequel to The Godfather. Laney said she might know someone who'd be interested. She called a few days later and set up a meeting and this man came out, says Robert Evans, referring to Roy Radin. And Evans continues, and he didn't cut the most dapper appearance. Radin was close to 300 pounds and his weight made him seem much older than his 33 years. According to Anna Montenegro, He was a man with superhuman appetites. Anna Montenegro says he would do five grams of Coke a day, then order Chinese food asking for everything on the menu, and he'd eat it. (laughs) Raiden had made his fortune producing variety shows featuring such aging stars as Milton Berle, Georgie Jessel, and Johnny Ray. His sister Kate that says from age 17 on, he supported his mother and three sisters in a quote-unquote tale style, buying them a home in Hampton Bays on Long Island. For himself, he purchased a 77-room castle in nearby Southampton. In 1980, Raiden's name was splattered across the tabloids when a young actress model named Melanie Holler claimed she had been raped and beaten during a weekend orgy at his mansion. Eventually, Raiden was acquitted of all charges, except carrying a concealed weapon, but the damage to his reputation was irreparable. Evans is being interviewed in this blonde widow piece in 1991 and will tell the interviewer, Now, my naivete was not checking him out and not checking her out it was the only time in 25 years I didn't have a lawyer. Evans claims to have been blindsided by not having someone run references on the two, but he doesn't mention that he must have been equally snowblinded by his own drug use. Evans had landed a year's probation for his 1980 conviction of cocaine possession and promised the judge that he had learned from his mistakes. However, several of his friends and former staffers insist that his use of drugs, if anything, escalated. Evans continues in this interview, If I had known Raiden was involved in this Melanie Holler thing in Long Island, I would have never met him. I ask if at any time Evans knew that Laney Jacobs was a drug dealer. Evans says no. If I'd heard about it, I would have ran. I would have ran. I would have ran. Roy Radin had met Lainey Jacobs at a Beverly Hills party, and the two had hit it off. Radin was keen to move to Los Angeles and desperate to get into the movie business. Days after meeting Evans, Lainey, limoed by Gary Keyes, picked up Roy Radin at LAX. According to Lainey, Radin was jubilant, and later that night, he produced a two-page typed agreement that guaranteed that she would be a 50-50 partner in any venture he entered into with Evans. She claims they both signed it, but that her copy has mysteriously disappeared. Laney also claims that Anna Montenegro was in the car that night. Montenegro, when pressed, says she was not in the car and has no memory of a contract, but adds, Roy would have promised her anything, to meet with Robert Evans. Over the next week, negotiations to form a film company moved along smoothly and quickly. Laney says that the threesome never did cocaine in front of each other during business meetings at Evans' home, but that each of us took long trips to the bathroom, quote unquote. Radin had found a banker friend named Jose Algria, who had devised a plan for raising $35 million in Puerto Rico. Raiden phoned Algria at 3 in the morning to tell him, I found the chance of a lifetime. However, Jose Algria testified that Raiden never mentioned Laney. He said he ran into Robert Evans in the polo lounge, as if the two were old friends. Unaware of Raiden's dismissal of her, Laney left the day-to-day business to the two men. Laney began sleeping with Evans, to whom she, no doubt, must have seemed like the sugar plum fairy. In one hand, she held a multi-million dollar production deal. In the other, an unlimited supply of fresh-off-the-boat Colombian cocaine. Bouquets of flowers from Evans arrived regularly at Laney's door. This is all some seedy stuff, friends. People making bad decisions in a drug-fueled haze. So, during this time, Roy Radin disappears. And because Robert Evans is Robert Evans, he gets attached into Radin's disappearance and subsequent murder. Robert Evans writes, Many years before I was staying at Francis Coppola's Napa Valley estate, Richard Gere, Gregory Hines, Dyson Lovell, Coppola and I were behind closed doors. Coppola's just-finished second-draft script of the Cotton Club was being read aloud by Gear and Hines to make comments and changes on. A knock at the door. Sophia, Francis's daughter, came in and whispered in my ear, An urgent call, Mr. Evans. Damn it, sorry, fellas. I ran to the main house and rushed to the phone. It was Greg Bouncer still bristling from my 1980 coke bust. I've been hearing rumblings I don't like, he said. About me, replies Evans. Why do you think I'm calling? This guy Radin, do you know him? Yeah, why? He's missing, that's why. And your name's involved. He's not up here, I swear. Now can I go back to rehearsal? Rehearsal? I stepped out of a meeting with Kurt Kerwerke to make this call. It's no joke. You can't afford another 1980. Greg, how do I know where the guy is? Bob, it doesn't matter. If I hear it, others do too. Protect yourself. Take no chances. You can't afford more bad press. I've already put in a call to Robert Shapiro. He's the best criminal attorney in town. Don't leave the phone and keep your fingers crossed that he's available. Greg, I hardly know this guy, Raiden. Where do I fit in? your name is Bob Evans. That's where it fits in. And Robert Evans's life changed forever and not in a good way. About a month later, when Roy Raiden's body was found, the media was unrelenting in its coverage. To make matters worse, the investigation goes on for years, which meant that Robert Evans could not defend himself or speak about the situation until it was over. As the investigation waned, the Raiden family hired a private investigator, and since Robert Evans was linked to Laney Jacobs, he, Robert Evans, was being linked to the murder. In The Kid Stays in the Picture, Robert Evans explains that the prosecution tried desperately to link the murder to his film, even though there was no connection. Evans writes, Roy Radin's death would normally not rate any interest in Los Angeles. At the time, there were 17 other first-degree murder cases in trial. However, because I had met with Radin and Jacobs, and drawn up contracts to have Radin finance a motion picture company, I gave headline value. The names Robert Evans and The Cotton Club still sell newspapers. It takes a number of years for the case to be investigated. It takes even longer for it to go to court. But once four people were prosecuted for Raiden's murder and conspiracy to commit the murder, Robert Evans was called in to testify. The rest of that story coming back after a quick break. Robert Evans is called in to testify within this case. Who was Robert Evans's attorney? none other than Robert Shapiro. This is in the 80s. We will see Robert Shapiro again, coming in the 1990s, attached to our man Nick within the O.J. Simpson trial. But back in the 80s, Robert Shapiro, big time criminal defense attorney, what was his recommendation for his new client, Robert Evans? Shapiro recommends invoking the Fifth Amendment, but that is not what Robert Evans wanted to do. There was a whole lot that led up to the moments that Robert Evans had on the stand. From Evans's book, he will describe the day of May 12, 1989, this way. Yes, 1989, it takes that long to get this case to court. Evans writes, The last time I was in downtown Los Angeles was for the Academy Awards, the biggest night in Hollywood, lights, limousines, stars. This time it was a different story. Rather than the evening lights, it was the morning breeze. Rather than a limousine, I arrived in a nondescript car hoping not to be recognized. My lawyer, Robert Shapiro, had arranged for my arrival as a witness. We had special permission to drive underneath to the judge's entrance. A friend of Shapiro, a judge, was there to meet us and take us up to a private elevator. I stepped out of the elevator and looked Shapiro straight in the eye. I can't do this. I can't take the fifth. I'm going to testify. Grabbing my arm, my lawyer said, if you do, I leave. His eyes were as cold as his words. Did I pay heed? You bet I did. Our attempts to avoid television cameras? Forget it. Heading down the long corridor to Division 30 of the Criminal Courts Building, it was Academy Award time revisited. Lights, camera, action. Instead of an acceptance speech, words that I never thought I'd utter were going to come from my mouth. I respectfully refused to answer any questions based on my constitutional privilege under the Fifth Amendment. If Robert Evans thought his life was more like a novel or film prior to that day, he must have been more convinced than ever that he was living an unbelievable life. Then certainly he must have been wondering how he had been called to give testimony in the murder investigation. After the disappearance of Roy Radin and the subsequent eight years, Robert Evans's life would be a nightmare it would take his personal life and career a long time to recover not just from the damage of his 1980 cocaine arrest, but now his name being connected to a high-profile murder. It would turn out that Robert Evans was cleared of any involvement, but that fact would not save him from losing everything. Even after those involved with the murder were convicted and sentenced, Robert Evans was still associated with the scandal and was advised never to speak about it. Evans writes about the advice he got from Robert Shapiro after he was finally told that he would not be called as a witness at the actual trial. Evans, this matter now has to be placed behind you, Shapiro told me. You will not be called as a witness. You will not have to testify for any side in this case. Further, You should never discuss this case with anyone. Why? Because somewhere, sometime, someplace, there may be some prosecutor or detective who feels something said, even in jest, might have some significance. Remember Evans, the statute of limitations never runs out in a case like this. Come on, y'all. We know that Robert Evans is no murderer. Everybody knows that. Even Dominic Dunn's sister-in-law, Joan Didion, knows that. She will write about this case in a piece of hers called L.A. Noire in 1989. It seems everyone knows that Robert Evans is taking the short end of the stick in this particular situation. Joan Didion, L.A. Noire, 1989. She writes about the case and this preliminary trial. It was the contention of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office that Laney Greenberger had hired her co-defendants to kill Roy Raiden after he refused to cut her in on his share of the profits from Robert Evans's 1984 picture The Cotton Club. It was claimed that Laney Greenberger had introduced Roy Raiden, who wanted to get into the movie business to Robert Evans. It was claimed that Roy Raiden had offered to find. In return for 45% of the profits from either one Evans picture, the Cotton Club, or three Evans pictures, the Cotton Club, the Sicilian, and the Two Jakes, Puerto Rican investors quote-unquote willing to put up either 35 or $50 million. Certain objections leap to the non-prosecutorial mind here. The Puerto Rican investors turned out to be one Puerto Rican banker with connections, The money never actually materialized. Roy Radin, therefore, had no share of the profits. There were no profits in any case, but seemed not to have figured in the state's case. The district attorney's office was also hinting, if not quite contending, that Robert Evans himself had been in on the payoff of Radin's killers, and the district attorney's office had a protected witness still another Flint security man, this one receiving $3,000 a month from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, who had agreed to say in court that one of the defendants, William Metzner, told him that Laney Greenberger and Robert Evans had, in the witness's words, paid for the contract. Given the state's own logic, it was hard to know what Robert Evans might have thought to gain by putting out a contract on the goose with the $50 million egg, but the deputy district attorney on the case seemed unwilling to let go of this possibility and had, in fact, told reporters that Robert Evans was, quote, one of the people who we have not eliminated as a suspect, unquote. Neither, on the other hand, was Robert Evans, one of the people they had arrested, a circumstance suggesting certain lacunae in the case, from the major money point of view, and also from the district attorneys. Among people outside the criminal justice system, it was widely, if vaguely assumed, that Robert Evans was somehow on trial during the summer of 1989. Evans linked for first time in court to Raiden's murder, the headlines were telling them, and in the past tense obituary mode, Evans's success came early career epitomized Hollywood dream Peter Bart who had worked under Evans at Paramount told the Los Angeles Times again in the obituary mode Bob always had a premonition that his career would peak before he was 50 and fade downhill he lived by it he was haunted by it to those of us who knew him and knew what a good spirited person he was it's a terrible sadness here was a case described by the Times as, quote, focused on the dark side of Hollywood deal-making, unquote, a case offering, quote, an unsparing look at the film Capital's unsavory side, unquote, a case everyone was just calling Cotton Club or even just Cotton as in Cotton Big Movie deal sequel is murder. Inside the system, the fact that no charge had been brought against the single person on the horizon who had a demonstrable connection with the Cotton Club was rendering Cotton Club increasingly problematic. Not only was Evans not on trial in Division 47, but what was going on there was not even a trial, only a preliminary hearing intended to determine whether the state had sufficient evidence and cause to prosecute those charged, none of whom was Evans. Ah, oh, this story takes a long time. It's going to take eight years before those responsible for the murder of Roy Radin to be convicted. One of those convicted, Karen Greenberger, Elaine Jacobs, Laney Jacobs, would be outed as a drug dealer and would-be Hollywood deal maker. In Laney's testimony, she was clear that Robert Evans had nothing to do with the kidnapping or murder. In fact, it was Laney Jacobs' two bodyguards, William Metzner and Alex Marty, one of whom had been a former bodyguard to Larry Flint, and the limousine driver, Robert Lowe, who were found guilty of kidnapping and murdering Roy Radin. The whole ordeal was, according to the Los Angeles Times, a tale of cocaine, sex, and greed. The prosecutors said that Laney Jacobs was angry because she believed Roy Radin was trying to cut her out of the production deal for the Cotton Club, so she hired three hitmen to kill Radin. One of the key witnesses was Larry Flint's former brother-in-law, William Ryder. Ryder testified that Metzner and Marty had discussed killing Raiden at Flint's mansion. Laney Jacobs was convicted of second degree murder and kidnapping and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Robert Lowe, William Metzner, and Alex Marty were convicted of first degree murder and kidnapping. They were also sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Robert Evans writes of the aftermath of all of this, this decade, Roy Radin's murder, all of it for him. All the defendants were convicted, Robert Evans writes. Me, not only was I not convicted, but I was never charged with a crime, anything. But I was punished, punished by the innuendos, lies, character assassination, and nightmares That jolted me out of bed in a cold sweat. Punished by disgrace for something I had nothing to do with, something I had nothing to be ashamed of. Punished by a lifetime of silence. Until the day I die, I am not allowed to discuss the case without consulting my attorney, Robert Shapiro. What you have just read met his approval. A nightmare is a nightmare is a nightmare but it came with a sense of discovery. Call it a human relationship. In a hotel room in San Francisco, I met Robert Shapiro, a man who became my counsel, rabbi, father, confessor, friend, and brother. His service is priceless, yet never once a bill. I've asked him many a time, Bob, what's the number? What do I owe you? I'm no charity case. It never fails. He just looks at me and smiles. Only after all the verdicts were in, did Vanity Fair publish an article clearly stating that the murder of Roy Radin had nothing at all to do with the film The Cotton Club or Robert Evans. But until then, the connection between the film and the murder and the kid was far too enticing. Robert Evans will tell The Times in 1993 about this period. I had 10 years of a horrific life, Kafka esque. There were nights I cried myself to sleep. This decade, this case should have taken the kid out, but <laughs> Robert Evans, he's always finding a new way up and out. On Robert Evans being interviewed in 1991, after all the fallout, Robert Evans spent Oscar night entertaining at his home. Evans recently made the front page of Variety, announcing that he's back on track at Paramount with a multi-picture deal based on The Saint, the old Roger Moore television series, along with several other projects in The Hopper. He's also writing his autobiography with Charles Michener. Best of all, he says he has rebounded from a suicidal depression that seized him almost two years ago. I was lying in a fetal position for four months, he says. Finally, I put myself in a loony bin in the valley because I really thought I was going to kill myself. Two days later, I walked out of the hospital. It was too boring. The interviewer asks Evans if, in light of his drug history and depression, he ever went into therapy. Robert Evans says, No, I don't believe in it. I'm an eventist. I think events change your life, not therapy. I've been through an eight-year nightmare. I'm a survivor. I think that is for certain. The 1980s were really a rough decade for the kid. But hey, the 1990s are going to look up for Robert Evans. The next decade and beyond will bring even more changes for Bob. And that is where we will return on Done and Done to wrap up our Six Degrees of Robert Evans series. Until then, patreon.com slash done is the place to go to add more into your investigation. We do have a few bonus stories coming up this week to delight your literary heart, your trashy heart too, I think. We're going to dip a bit more into that Joan Didion piece. We're also going to talk about Dominic Dunn's reporting on Warren Beatty too. Really excited about those. Stay tuned, Patreon folks, for those goodies this week. Once again, thanks everybody for tuning in today and all the ways you support the podcast, telling your friends about Done and Done, your kind emails, your ratings and reviews, too. I am so grateful for all the ways you lend your support. Until we meet again, wishing you all the very best week. And you know, I want you to stay curious and keep. On investigating. Thanks for listening to the Dun and Done Podcast, a hemlock creatives production. You can email us at dunandone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Dunandone Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at ww.dunandone.com. See you next week, friends.